Good, well about a year ago I uh, took Mia on her first theatre experience, went to Oxford Playhouse to see George's Marvelous Medicine, we got there nice and early, got our big bucket of popcorn, went to find our seats and we're on the front row, which is quite exciting for Mia, debut theatre trip, you can literally reach out and the stage is sort of, we're at the level of the stage. About five minutes before the performance begins, you get the usual um, announcement through the tannoy. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show will be starting in five minutes' time. And of course, the excitement's building now. The clock is ticking. Five minutes till it all begins. Then the music begins. A couple of minutes to go. The, the theme tune for George's Marvellous Medicine rings out around the surround sound. And then the curtain opens. And the set of George's Marvellous Medicine is revealed. And for the next 90 minutes, Mia, and to be fair, me as well, we sit there captivated by the drama that unfolds before our eyes. You see, that's something of what's going on here in the book of Revelation. The, the word revelation that you find in chapter 1, verse 1, that gives name to this book, literally means an unveiling or disclosure. It's like the curtain is being pulled back at the start of a performance to give us a, a glimpse of these previously unseen heavenly realities. It's a vision of God seated on his throne in all his regal splendour. It's a vision of God in glorious technicolour. And like Mir, I hope this morning and over the course of these next couple of days, we will sit here captivated by the drama that unfolds before our eyes. And as we walk through these two chapters together, could I Encourage us not to, not to stand at the edge and look in from afar, from a distance, and, and peer into what's going on, but to join John as he walks through this open door into heaven itself to see what John saw, to hear what John heard, to feel what John felt, and to stand in awe as John stood in awe of our risen and exalted Saviour. It is a vision that should humble us. If there is any pride left within our bones this morning, this vision of God should humble us and bring us to our knees. It's a vision that should encourage and strengthen us if we're weary with life, if we feel burdened in life. It is a, a vision that should give new legs to our faith. And it's a vision that should liberate us for a life of wholehearted worship. But before we do enter through that door into heaven, I think it's worth pausing for just a minute to make sure we understand what type of writing the book of Revelation is. A lot of people get into a mess when they read the book of Revelation because they haven't understood the genre. They haven't understood what type of writing it is. The official name is apocalyptic. In simple terms, it's a picture book. It's full of big, bold pictures and colourful symbols, it's almost, it's dreamlike, it's more like a series of dreams than it is a series of documentaries. For example, in the two chapters before, as you've heard it read to us, the Lord Jesus is depicted, he's pictured as a, as a lion and a lamb. You see, here's the thing, when I stand before my Saviour in heaven, I'm not going to see Jesus prowling round heaven like a lion. I'm not going to see him sat in the corner of the throne room bleating away like a lamb. I'm going to see Jesus in his glorious physical resurrection body. The same body with which he left this earth 
and ascended into heaven. The lion and the lamb are not literal descriptions of what Jesus looks like. They are pictures that help us understand something of the wonderful character of Jesus Christ, who's both lion-like, majestic, powerful and kingly, and lamb-like, sacrificial and servant-hearted. And you see it's the same with the numbers in the book of Revelation. As you read through, you'll see repeated numbers such as 7 and 12 and 1,000. We'll come to them in, in Revelation chapter 21 next. And you see, if we start taking these numbers literally, we'll end up in a bit of a mess because they're not designed to be read as such. This is a picture book. These numbers are symbolic. They help us understand great truth and reality about our God. And so with that in mind, come with me, if you would, to chapter 4, verse 1, where we find the setting for this drama as we enter with John himself into heaven. This is what we read in verse 1. Do have a look down. It's on the screen as well. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. We have a voice and we have a vision. The voice is the voice of the Lord Jesus. It's the same voice we hear in chapter 1, verse 10. And again, it's described like a trumpet. Why? To grab John's attention and to grab our attention too. And this voice beckons John inwards and upwards. And John is, is carried up in the spirit into heaven itself. The control and command center for the whole universe. And what does John see in this vision as he enters heaven? Verse 2, there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who is seated on the throne is God himself. And look how he's described in verse 3. And the one who sat there, we sung this in the first song already, the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. This is where we've got to turn up the dials and tune in the senses. Because we have a scene before us that is crashing with sound and with colour. The precious stones in verse 3 remind us of the beauty and the, the creativity of God expressed in Eden. We're in the presence here of the Creator God. The rainbow in verse 3, where does that take us? It takes us back to Genesis chapter 9, does it not? The rainbow that God put in the world after he brought, brought judgment on this world. We're in the presence here of the promise-making, covenant-keeping God. And then, of course, the thunder and the lightning in verse 5. They take us back to Mount Sinai. When God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, he led them to Mount Sinai and he descended on that mountain in fire and in power. And the mountain shook as God spoke as he gave his law to his people through Moses. We are in the presence here of the law-giving God. Or as we read in verse 8, the Lord God Almighty who is seated on his throne. You see, there's lots of thrones and rulers and powers and authorities in this world. In fact, John's original audience would have known that all too well. 
The seven churches that he writes to in chapter 2 and 3 were living under the oppressive rule of Rome, the beastly rule of Caesar, and they knew all too well the powerful seat of Rome every day in their lives. And as John sets this vision before the people, he wants to remind them that yes, there are rulers, yes, there are powers in this world, but there is a throne that stands above all other thrones. And it's the throne pictured here in chapter 4, verse 2. It is a throne that features in 16 out of the 22 chapters. It runs all the way through the book of Revelation. And what's the point God is making? Well, it's a simple one, really. He's in charge. He's king. He always has been, and he always will be. There was a lady called Enid who was at... uh, Hans Home Church in Devon. She's now gone to be with the Lord. But I had a a conversation with her about three years ago. And she told me a story of living through the Blitz. And she was was hiding under a kitchen table with her mum and her three sisters. Safest place in the house. Sirens are going off. Bombs are dropping. There's, There's screaming. There's noise. There's chaos. There's confusion. And as all this noise in life is going on around them, Enid is sat under the kitchen table with her family singing, our God is still on his throne. What a lovely picture of life that is, isn't it? The chaos, the mess, the brokenness of this world, the pain, the noise that is all around us. In a world in which it seems at times like evil will prevail, the resounding truth that dominates the book of Revelation is this, our God is still on his throne. And the picture before us in chapter 4, let me say, is not a future reality. It is a present reality. As surely as you are sat before me today, God himself is seated on his throne. And under his sovereign rule, he is bringing all of history to his desired conclusion, the new heavens and the new earth, which is where we're heading next in chapter 21. And then in verse 4, do you see the little verse there sandwiched in between the description of God in verse 3 and verse 5? We're introduced to some other thrones. Do you see them there? Surrounding the throne in verse 4 were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. Now there's a number of different interpretations as you read the commentaries as to who these elders represent, but I think the most likely explanation is they represent the full membership of God's people. Twelve tribes in the Old Testament plus twelve apostles in the New Testament, the full membership of the people of God gather together around the throne of God and they're dressed in white as a symbol of purity because they've been cleaned up by Christ. And they've got crowns of gold on their head because by the grace of God they are victorious. But as we read on, we notice that the elders aren't the only ones gathered around the throne. Have a look down at verse 6. In the centre, halfway through verse 6, in the centre around the throne were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. Second, like an ox. The third had the face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. 
Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all round, even under its wings, day and night. They never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. We read about these creatures back in Ezekiel chapter 1. The lion is a picture of nobility. The ox is a picture of strength. The the human face is a picture of wisdom. The eagle is a picture of speed and of grace. And so here we have these four heavenly creatures ministering to God around the throne of God. And as they do, they, they reflect the characteristics of God. A regal, strong, wise, gracious, all-seeing God, hence the eyes that are everywhere. And day and night they are ceaseless in their praise. They never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the praise of these four heavenly creatures triggers a Mexican wave of praise. Do you see it there from verse 9? When the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. What happens? The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God to receive glory and honour and power. Why? For you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. And if you jump forward to chapter 5, verse 11, you'll see there that the angels get caught up in this great noise in heaven. Here we have a Mexican wave of praise rippling out from the centre of heaven. The throne of God is right at the centre surrounded by these four living creatures ministering to God. Around them, the 24 elders representing the full membership of the people of God. And around them, the rest of the angelic realms caught up in this glorious noise of praise, all poured out towards the one who is seated on the throne. And of course, through faith in Jesus Christ, one day, whenever that day is, we will go to join the Mexican wave of praise. (laughs) The scene before us there is a scene that we too will join one day when the Lord Jesus calls us home. We've got a a funeral coming up next Saturday. Um, 48-year-old man who's lost uh, a six-year battle with cancer died uh, six days ago. He's left behind a wife and, and two children. He's in heaven. He's with his saviour. He's joined the Mexican wave of praise. Whatever that looks like, we've got a vision of it and we we try to understand something of what it looks like. It's not literal, remember? This is a vision trying to give us something of what it will be like. He's there. He's with his Lord in glory. And of course, for Elizabeth, wife, for Samuel and for Hannah, what do they need to remember? as they live amongst the pain and the brokenness and the confusion of this life now, their God is still on his throne. And by his grace, he will keep hold of them until they go to join him in glory. 
It's pretty breathless, isn't it, chapter 4? Feels pretty breathless. Imagine John being caught up in this vision. But John, you see, hasn't got time to catch his breath because Revelation chapter 4 is just the setting. It's the setting for the drama that is about to unfold now in chapter 5. Have a look down at verse 1 of chapter 5. The curtain's being pulled right back. You're sat there in the theatre of heaven, captivated by the next scene that is about to unfold. Have a look at verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. The scroll represents the unfolding plans and purposes of God and it's in God's right hand. Why? Because all of history is held in the sovereign palm of God. And as the scroll will be unrolled in the future chapters, as each seal is removed, so we'll see further. So we'll see deeper into God's saving plans and purposes. But of course, it's not a scroll that anyone can open. You see that there in verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who is worthy? to unfold the rest of salvation history. Answer verse 3, no one. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. And it is an answer that brings John to his knees in despair and tears. I wept and I wept, says John, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. But then, of course, we read in verse 5, do we not? Then, one of the elders said to me, John, my friend, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, past tense, already conquered. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion from the tribe of Judah is a picture of God's Sovereign King, born into the line of Judah, born into the line of David, the promised Messiah who would come and conquer and bring salvation to the people of God. And the elder says to John, John, my friend, do not weep. Why? For that King has already come. And that King has already conquered. And so John, consumed with this picture of an all-conquering, majestic, regal, lion-like figure, turns to look. And you can imagine his heart beating triple speed as he turns to face the mighty Christ of all of history. And what does he see? Verse 6. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. What a contrast that is, isn't it? He expects to see a mighty lion. Instead, he sees a lowly lamb looking like it has been slain, killed. The symbol of kingship and power has given way to one of servanthood and sacrifice. The mighty roar we are anticipating is now a deafening silence. And you see, here's the beauty of this vision. Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. He doesn't alternate between the two. Simultaneously at the same time, Jesus is both lion and lamb. He is majestic and meek. 
He is sovereign and sacrificial. He is kingly and kind. He is terrifying and tender. He's supreme and servant-hearted. And he has already conquered through laying down his life at the cross. For those of you who've seen The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, that, that scene where Aslan, the great lion-like figure, is, is killed on that stone slab is such a moving scene, not because he couldn't fight back. He could have done. It's so moving because he could have fought back. But he chose not to. And he laid down his life. It is a picture of Jesus, our lion and our lamb, who has all the authority of heaven, yet he willingly laid down his life for our sake. And so as you read on in the rest of chapter 5, it's the lamb who is now centre stage, and rightly so. In fact, in verse 6, he's now standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures, and just as they did in verse 4, so they do again. They fall in praise before the throne, but this time before the Lamb. You see, our worship is to be directed to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see that there in verse 13? Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. And the word worshipped at the end there of verse 14 literally means to fall prostrate. Here we've got a picture of people falling down in order to fall down. Wherever you look, people are going to their knees. Not because they've been pushed from behind or, or tripped up, but because they can do nothing else in the presence of our glorious Saviour. Jesus alone is worthy of our praise. And have a look at the new song on the heavenly playlist. You see it there in verse 9? What a glorious playlist it will be in heaven. No griping over what we sing in church as there is sometimes this side of heaven, in heaven, no griping. What a wonderful playlist that people from every tribe and nation and language and tongue will join together in this glorious chorus. You are worthy to take the scroll. It's a new song. And to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. The unique status that was given to Israel in the Old Testament is now extended to people from every tribe and nation and tongue. The gospel is a gospel for all because Jesus is a saviour for all. Fully God and fully man. Our creator and our redeemer. And so as we draw things to a close, let me ask you a, a question, and the question is this. As you're sat there this morning, whatever's going on in your life, whatever the noise around you in life at this time, I wonder how big your view of Jesus is this morning. And how does your view of Jesus impact your view of self? You see, what we have before us is a vision of God that should firstly humble us.
Back in Revelation chapter 1, when John received his first vision, we read this in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. It is a vision of Jesus that almost knocks the life out of John. So holy and pure and glorious is our Saviour. Isaiah had a similar experience, didn't he? Do you remember when he was called to his ministry in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 4, at the sound of, of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And do you remember the response of Isaiah? Woe to me, he says. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And we see exactly the same thing when the Lord Jesus calls Simon Peter down by the Sea of Galilee. The miraculous catch of fish, and Peter sees something, just a glimpse of the majesty of Jesus. And do you remember what he says? Get away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. We'll only understand the real me when we're in the presence of the real him. You will only understand what you are really like when you stand for long enough in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a vision that should humble us. Secondly, it's a vision that should encourage us and strengthen us. If you are weary in life because of circumstance or your heart feels far, maybe from the Lord this morning, this is a vision that should lift us because it reminds us of two things. Number one, our God is still on his throne. And number two, Jesus has already conquered. And if you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you stand with the one that rules all of history. And you have all the grace and the power and the resources of heaven at your disposal. It's a vision that should humble us. It's a vision that should strengthen us. And lastly, it's a vision that should liberate us for a life of wholehearted worship. You see a small view of Jesus will lead to a little dribble of praise. A little drip of worship here, a little drip of life given to Jesus there, but the rest of my life, I'll use it for me. That's where a small view of Jesus leads, but a big biblical revelation chapter 4 and 5 through the curtain into the very presence of God will lead to a deluge of praise, an outpouring of adoration, not just in sung worship, but in all of life, and indeed in all of eternity. It's what God made you for, and it's what he sent Jesus into this world to save you for, that we together would be a people of praise in all that we do. So let me give you a minute, we're going to break off and there's, there's questions to chat about uh, in your groups and maybe just take a minute or two to, to ask yourself that big question first before you come to the detail of the questions. As you're sat there this morning, how big is your view of Jesus? Do you spend long enough stopping to contemplate the vision that God gives us in his word of who he is and what he's doing? in his world. Take a minute or two just to, just to reflect on that and then Lanks will send us off to do whatever we need to do.